Welcome to the Arroyo Seco Weekend Podcast. I'm Liz Warner. This is your chance to get to know some of the players, makers, and thinkers coming together for a spectacular weekend in beautiful Pasadena. On today's podcast, we travel to Detroit, Michigan to pay a visit to Jack White's Third Man Records. I just had no idea there was so much devotion to alternative music, specifically Jack White, which is kind of cool. Then we'll dance our way into outer space, searching for life with the Laboratory for Embodied Intelligences. One of my key interests was who's defining intelligence and how are we defining it? And finally, author Michelangelo Matos tells the story of how the revolution came together to help Prince perform classic hits like Little Red Corvette and Purple Rain. So stick around for all that and more on this episode of the Arroyo Seco Weekend Podcast. Thanks for listening. Third Man Records' impressing plant is one of Cass Corridor's newest surprises. The Detroit neighborhood itself is historic, boasting creative types and crime alike. But it's undergone a transformation that was only beginning to take hold when I left the city a decade ago. I checked in with Third Man on a recent return trip to my hometown and ran into Dave. David Buick, but you can call me Dave. My card says romantic comedian. Also known as a main mover and shaker at Third Man, who has a long history of releasing and making music in Detroit. He also released the first White Stripe 7-inch single. I asked him the first time he saw Jack White play. First time I saw Jack was sitting in with someone just playing guitar. But the first time I saw him like as his own show, it was with the White Stripes, and that was at the Gold Dollar 21 years ago. The first time I saw Jack White play was on a slide guitar in the late 1990s in a friend's basement studio in Detroit, or it could have been at the now-famous Gold Dollar with the band Two Star Tabernacle. Even then, the stage could barely contain his frenetic energy. Today, the Gold Dollar, once a drag club, sits as a nondescript, dilapidated building just blocks away from Third Man Records, the complex that houses a storefront for Jack's long-standing record label, along with a record-pressing plant looked after by Jack's older brother, Eddie. In this pressing area, these are the first newly fabricated uh, machines that have been manufactured for pressing records in the last uh, 30 plus years. Uh, we kind of stumbled on this company sort of by accident. We thought we were going to uh, have to go to the junkyard and kind of start piecing back and Frankensteining some machines back together, but we came across this company that, uh, uh, that said that they were starting to build these machines. So we went and checked it out. And sure enough, um, they were able to fabricate these machines that are based on old design, uh, but all with all modern day uh, technology as far as uh, digital controls for your steam and water and all of all the things that uh, make the machine run. I was curious about how many hand pressed records could be made in one shift. Um, it depends on the day. I mean, usually around like 400 a press, probably per day. 
Um, if, as long as everything's going smoothly, it should go that way. As Eddie gave me the tour of the pressing plant, I asked him about the first time he saw his younger brother play. Uh, he was uh, his early teens. Uh, I remember him uh, taking drum lessons was what his interest was. Probably the first one in the family that would actually took formal lessons on an instrument. So uh, that was uh, that was interesting because he was uh, it was probably the, the perfect instrument for him to start out on. Um, Playing guitar was kind of a surprise. It came later, and um, it took me by surprise because I, I was the one that had always kind of played guitar, and then all of a sudden he had picked it up and took to it really, really quickly. The clean and shiny pressing plant resembles a lab more than a factory. The signature black and bright yellow colors adorn each element from the walls, floors, and presses to the clothing worn by each associate. Some of those associates were on the scene some two decades ago when the third man storefront wasn't even yet conceived. Roe Paterhands runs operations at Third Man. I mean, it's really the history, you know, the history, Jack's history in Detroit, the White Stripes, and the history of Third Man Records, you know, having a start here as just an idea or an imprint label. But Detroit has not had, you know, this kind of foot traffic retail thing going on for, you know, many years. And everybody's been, you know, we've been keeping an eye on Detroit and watching this sort of resurgence and renaissance. And as neighborhoods, and especially this neighborhood, which, which with such meaning, Cass Corridor, which exudes all the art and poetry and music that sort of took place here, the, you know, the punk rock stuff, the, all, the, all the avant-garde writing and all the sort of, you know, radical things that went on in the 60s, 70s, and then fast forward to the 80s and 90s. You know, that wall that you look at when you come through the hallway here, is three generations of rock and roll in the Cass Corridor. It's the MC5 at Wayne State, White Stripes a mile down the street, and the, and the Gorys one block behind us at the Willis Gallery. So as we started seeing activity, retail, foot traffic, restaurants, and buildings becoming available that were really special and cool, uh, it made sense to, to finally put a brick and mortar thing here. A dog park replaces the area where prostitutes and drug dealers gathered just a decade ago. Pedestrians walk carefree with backpacks through the area, once declared one of the city's most dangerous zones. But in today's cast corridor, Warren DeFever is mastering archived music from the Algebra Mothers, a punk art rock band. It's older recordings, late 70s, early 80s. Some studios, some live, some, some at home. Sounds great. Uh, they're an insanely amazing band. Warren DeFever is responsible for the 4AD act His Name is Alive, and he's called Michigan home for his entire life. Bill Skibby is also in the room. Originally from Detroit, he's recorded numerous acts at the Key Club on the western coast of Michigan. Today, Bill's here for mastering, but he's also the person responsible for recording several of Jack White's projects. I asked him about the approach for Jack's new record, boarding house reach. The idea was to do things, a combination of things that he had done when he was a kid and then things that he had never done. You know, I worked on a, a record with Jack, a Dead Weather record in 2008 or 2009, and it was the same kind of crazy approach to recording, which is just get in and start playing and you better keep up in the control room. You have to ca capture it, it's going down right now. And so we tracked all the record on tape 
at a couple of different studios, and it was very much like that. People came into the room. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how many people were going to be on the record. And then, okay, you ready to go? Yep, we're ready to go. Okay, let's go. I mean, I, th I don't know. I felt like this record had a... To me, when I was hearing it go down, it had, for the first time in a while, I felt like it was back to Detroit in a, in a strange way. It's just the way the guitar, the, it's funky. It's a funky record in a lot of ways. And that's one of the things that I kept feeling like, wow, this has got a feel to it that's kind of back up north again and back to Detroit. It was, it's kind of, I mean, that's maybe, maybe that's part of the whole cycle circling back around to writing on the four track machine and, and the old TAC console. It's funny to be back in this neighborhood because we all came down here to see punk shows in the 90s and never imagined that this would be going on down here. Back in the storefront, someone's playing a classic red-white stripes guitar. Two customers mill about discussing the displays. I interrupt them to find out what's brought them here. May I ask you your name? Yeah, I'm Julia. Julia, are you from Detroit? Um, I've lived here two years. Julia moved to Detroit to work at Wayne State University, which is also part of the Cass Corridor. I like Jack White and the Raconteurs and the White Stripes, so. Have you ever seen any of them perform live? No, none of them. No, I should. <laughs> so what is it that you like about Jack White? Um, I like his edgy music, like the way he plays guitar. I like his lyrics, like the way he like sends a message. He's never just like singing. He always has like a reason behind his songs. So I like that. She's part of a new generation of fans, one that may not be aware of the context or the history of Third Man Records or of Cass Corridor. All that history might not really matter anyway. It's the future that's more compelling, even if it can't seem to shake its past. Music and food are mandatory for any festival. But what about experimental dance projects based on microbial intelligence and the search for extraterrestrial life? The Laboratory for Embodied Intelligence will be presenting just that at a Royal Seiko weekend, a roaming troupe of 15 dancers who will turn the lawn into a stage where you can watch their carefully choreographed movements. The project is the brainchild of Nina Weisman, a sound installation artist and former ballerina. It was inspired by a year she spent as an artist-in-residence at the SETI Institute, looking for intelligent life out in the universe. But what exactly does that mean? She explains. This project came out of a year I spent at the SETI Institute, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They used to be part of NASA, now they're their own nonprofit, large research institute, doing a lot of groundbreaking work on looking for life out in the universe. So as an artist in residence there, I got focused on these questions, on how we could understand non-human intelligences. So the Laboratory for Embodied Intelligences is a project where we try to understand non-human behaviors and intelligences in spite of the limits of our human bodies and brains. We try not to make the, to some degree, unavoidable mistake of anthropomorphizing every other creature that we meet. In particular, we're focused right now on learning from microbes. 
That's right, if there is life out in outer space, it's far more likely to resemble microbes here on Earth than anything imagined in a sci-fi film. So what would happen if we did find these space microbes? Could we communicate with them? Are space microbes trying to communicate with us right now? Can microbes communicate at all? The idea of microbial intelligence is a fairly new one, and not all the scientists in the world embrace it, but more and more of them do. And that's partly because in the last, like, 20 years or so, as we get more intelligent and our tooling gets better, we can actually start to see what microbes are up to. And the better our tools get, the more we realize that these creatures we once sneezed on and thought were foolish are up to much more sophisticated behavior. They're very social. They're very sharing. They do collective breathing. They share their food. They vote on every decision as a group. We thought if we try to do these things and start by having using our bodies and our sensitivities the way they do, we might get a little taste of that worldview. It's just a series of kind of skills that we've honed that help us try on the microbial intelligence, whether it's physical, spatial, how they communicate, how they work together, how they pass nutrients. Yeah, things like that. That's Nina's partner, professional dancer and choreographer Flora Weigman, explaining how their interest in microbes translates into an actual dance. I mean, we are trying to literally sometimes embody microbes with cytoplasm running through them, and their mode of transportation is unlike anything that our body can do, but we actually try to imagine being more water than we are and to reach with appendages that move us through space that don't actually exist. And so following their rules of movement, but actually doing it in a way that we're visualizing it or we are figuring out how our body could possibly attempt it. So there is, there's a notion of play and experimentation that follows through all the time in the studio. And the scientists at NASA, there are a number of them high up who actually think that this is going to be helpful for some of their research, too. So it's not as nutty as it sounds. <laughs> nutty or not, plenty of people are beginning to acknowledge the importance of microbes when it comes to our own bodies and our health. There is 150 times more microbial DNA in and on your body than human DNA. And so a lot of scientists who work in the field like to joke about how we're really just hotels for microbes because they're, there they are in your guts. Like you can't digest so much of your food without them. But not only that, the vagus nerve, which controls so much in your brain, your mood, a lot of fundamental systems, is directly fed and tweaked by what's going on in your guts. So the microbes in your guts, they might be the boss of most everything that happens. I mean, it's fun. We, maybe that's going a little too far, but they're in the driver's seat for a lot that happens in your body, like digestion, health, thinking. You can also think about the term gut feeling, and that actually comes from somewhere because the link between your gut and your vagus nerve to your brain is much faster than you taking in information from sight or touch and that getting to your brain. So you can actually understand things much more quickly from your gut to brain connection. And you don't need to be a NASA scientist or an alien microbe to appreciate the work that Nina and Flora are doing right here on Earth. I never make dances that you have to get the point. And I think 
it's just important for people to have the chance to experience moving bodies and and see them in in surprising places because maybe they don't seek out dance but i think it's a i think it's an important thing for people just to be in the same space with bodies doing something that's unlike what they're used to even if the people aren't doing the movement if they see it and their muscles start, their neurons start firing like that movement they're seeing, and their muscles start picking up those movements unconsciously, it could actually open their mind to different kind of thinking. And also kids really enjoy seeing something that's out of the ordinary, and I think they will probably be interested in watching it and might have questions that we actually wouldn't have thought of. So I think also just bringing up curiosity in people, too, where they didn't think that they would be seeing microbial movement at the music festival and um, surprise. <laughs> so yeah, I think, it's, I think it's just something that's really great to come across. Look for the bright pink dancers moving, microbe-like, across the field at Arroyo Seco weekend. When musical superstar Prince tragically passed away in 2016, he left behind dozens of hit records that redefined pop, rock, and R&B. Many of those songs were performed with the help of The Revolution, Prince's band throughout most of the 1980s. The Revolution will take the stage on Sunday, June 24th at Arroyo Seco weekend in Pasadena with original members Bobby Z, Matt Fink, Lisa Coleman, Brown Mark, and Wendy Malvoin performing many of the Purple One's most famous and funky songs. Music writer Michelangelo Matos grew up in Minneapolis and has written one book about his hometown hero, an in-depth look at Prince's 1987 double album Sign of the Times, as part of the 33 and a third series. We asked him to tell us the story of how the revolution formed around Prince to become one of the world's most famous backing bands. The Revolution, Prince's band in fact from 1978 to 1986 and in name from 82 to 86, occupies a paradoxical place in his music. Its members were in many ways integral to Prince's mid-80s purple patch of hit records, from 1999 and Little Red Corvette to Purple Rain, Raspberry Beret, and Kiss. Yet the perception of Prince as a studio auteur left little room for his musical colleagues to receive much credit, no matter how many millions they sold. Prince's first managers got him signed to Warner Brothers Records as a one-man band, the new Stevie Wonder, and he'd spent his late teenage years learning to master the recording studio on his own. At first, Prince recruited the Revolution as a strictly touring unit. But following his 1978 debut, For You, Prince's band members began peeking out at the world through the records one by one. On his 1979 self-titled second album, Prince's teenage roommate and early touring bassist, Andre Simone, sang harmony on Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad, though Simone went uncredited on the LP jacket. While the first two Prince albums were largely recorded in expensive California studios, the third was mostly made at home, in a basement studio in the Minneapolis suburb of Orano near Lake Minnetonka. Yes, that Lake Minnetonka. By this point, the band, Simone on bass, Bobby Z. Rivkin on drums, Gail Chapman and Matt Fink on keyboards, and Des Dickerson on lead guitar, had toured the U.S. and begun bonding as a unit, and their input was key to the pared-down, in-your-face sound of Dirty Mind, released in October 1980. In particular, Fink wrote the central riffs for both the title track and head, playing a freeze-frame synth solo on the latter. 
Additionally, Simone created the bass line of Uptown. As for the drums, Michael Bland of Prince's 90s band The New Power Generation thinks they were played on both Dirty Mind and its follow-up, 1981's Controversy, by Morris Day of the time. Controversy would also feature the first-ever group performance on a Prince album. The album's final track, Jack You Off, was cut live in the studio by the core of what would become the revolution. Bobby Z, Dr. Fink, and a new keyboardist replacing Gail Chapman named Lisa Coleman, who'd moved to the Twin Cities from Los Angeles to play with Prince. That song, a trashy, exuberant rockabilly throwaway, offered evidence that Prince wanted to be a rock star, not just an R&B singer, and that he had the band to take him there. There was another personnel swap at this point. Andre Simone left the group, replaced by Mark Brown, a.k.a. Brown Mark, whom Prince pinched from his own band, Fantasy. The band would change lead guitarists after the next album as well. 1999 would transform Prince's fortunes and that of his band. It yielded a trio of top 20 pop hits, including Little Red Corvette, which shattered AOR Radio's glass ceiling for black performers months before Michael Jackson's Beat It. The song also featured a solo by Prince's road axe man, Des Dickerson, who sang backup as well. In fact, nearly every member of the revolution appeared somewhere on 1999. Lisa Coleman sang backup on five songs, Brown Mark provided vocals and hand claps on DMSR, and on the song Free, Prince introduced a new background singer who went simply by Wendy. Even with these contributions, the vast majority of the sprawling 70-minute album was recorded by Prince himself. Yet on the cover, in small, backward lettering embedded inside the dot of the I, is written the words, and the revolution. As drummer Bobby Z would later tell Rolling Stone, he was setting the public up for something that was yet to come. The revolution would flourish for the next few years, most prominently in the film Purple Rain. In the denouement of the film, the fictionalized Prince character, played by Prince, performs the title song, which in the film is written by a fictionalized Wendy and Lisa, played by Wendy and Lisa. The fact that the song Purple Rain was actually written by Prince is just another paradox in the history of one of the music's greatest talents and the band that helped forge that legend. That's it for this episode of the Arroyo Seco Weekend Podcasts. Tune in to other episodes of the podcast to hear more stories about the talented people who helped make Arroyo Seco a weekend you won't want to miss. Go to ArroyoSecoWeekend.com for tickets and information, and we hope to see you in Pasadena. This podcast was produced for Golden Voice by Content Curious. <laughs>